Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Friday, July 14th. Most weeks we do three episodes of The Town. This has not been like most weeks. As of midnight, 160,000 actors are on strike, joining the writers. The whole town is basically shut down. The picket lines of famous people are currently up and running. This is really uncharted territory. As we talked about on the show yesterday, there hasn't been a two-union strike in Hollywood since 1960. And the entertainment business looked a lot different then. A lot smaller, basically movies, radio, and a couple TV channels showing gun smoke. Very far from the Netflix streaming revolution that has led to this labor impasse. So nobody's really sure how this will all play out or how long it will play out. Today, we've got the head guy at SAG-AFTRA on the show. Duncan Crabtree Ireland is the national executive director of the Guild, its longtime chief negotiator. I've known him for years. He's not an actor. He's a labor lawyer and runs the organization with its elected president, Fran Drescher, who is an actor. But Duncan's been in the room for weeks negotiating with the AMPTP, which is the trade group that represents the studios and streamers. He's going to take us inside those negotiations and how and why they broke down. He'll explain what the actors actually want on a bunch of these issues like data transparency and AI. They don't actually want to ban AI, which might surprise people. And he'll explain how this is all going to play out, or at least how it might play out. Just like I did with the writers, I also invited a representative from the studio side to come on the show. We'll see if they take me up on that offer for a future show. But today, no call sheet. It's the actor's side of the strike with its top leader. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. We are here with Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, who, in addition to being the National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA, is also the Chief Negotiator for the Collective Bargaining Agreements, one of which, the three-year studio deal, the major film and television deal, expired at midnight last night. Hard to believe it's only been a day. How has it been today? It's been a bit a bit hectic, I will admit that. But I have to say, you know, the support and outpouring of energy from our members who feel like we are doing the right thing and know that we are doing what we have to do to bring in a fair contract has been just amazing. It's been so strong and so consistent. It really has resonated a lot with me, I think, and probably with a lot of other people too. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I'll get to the solidarity issue right away. It's, I don't want to say easy, but it's one thing to 
make a lot of noise and have a lot of solidarity in week one of a strike. But this is something that could go on for a while. What's your plan to maintain that solidarity in week two, week 10, week 20? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Matt, because I think one of the things we've been doing over the last two months, so I guess by using weeks count, maybe it's actually more like nine or 10 weeks, we have had thousands of sag after members out on the picket lines with the Writers Guild, striking writers. And I think our solidarity with them and our presence there has helped keep their energy up. It's reminded them of the fact that we're all on the same side in this effort and that we have their back. And I expect them and other unions to have our back as well. Our members, you know, to be an actor in this town is not an easy job. You have to be tenacious. You have to be persistent. And you have to be prepared to accept rejection over and over again until you find success. I think those are exactly the kind of qualities that make actors well-suited to standing up for themselves and walking a picket line and doing what it takes to fight the strike until we reach that deal. There could be a deal tomorrow, you know, if the companies would step up and do the right thing. I don't you think, think that's going to happen. No, you I don't think, think that'll negotiate? happen tomorrow. No, not tomorrow. I mean, I think it will happen eventually. There will eventually be a deal. And as far as I'm concerned, that will happen when there is a fair deal on the table for our members. You know, I'm disappointed that when we said we we're willing to continue talking, that the companies said no to that and said that, you know, it's going to be a while before they're ready to talk to us again. Well, but you weren't willing to extend the deadline again. At least you said that. No, no, that's right. We weren't. We extended the deadline for 12 days already, an unprecedentedly long extension in the context of this contract. So no, we weren't willing to extend the deadline, but we are willing to keep talking. And by the way, the only way any strike ever gets resolved is by the parties continuing to talk and eventually reaching a deal. So their idea that there won't be any discussion while there's a strike in place is completely ridiculous and unrealistic. Yeah, that seems silly to me. Yeah. I mean, why would you not want to talk? Like if if this strike is causing problems for the industry, which I believe it is and will be, and, and sure it's causing problems for our members too, why would we not all want to talk and try to find a path forward? That just makes no sense. It gets to the leverage issue though. And, you know, you got to admit that the leverage that a union has these days is not quite the same as it was 15 years ago when the fall schedule was everything and the late night shows were so important. Now, you know, I know we've talked about this in the past, but there's a longer runway for these streaming services with global content pipelines and other avenues and all these libraries on demand where the consumer is not going to feel the strike as closely as he or she would have 15 years ago. You know, that, that may be, well be true, but there's another difference from 15 years ago, which is public support for labor unions and for collective bargaining is at an all-time high, far greater than it was 15 years ago. I have no doubt that there will be millions of people around this country who strongly support what we're doing, unionized people and non-unionized people who say... But how does, why does that matter? Why it matters I mean, is why, those it's are... A lot of, it's, is it, does it actually matter or is it just noise? No, I think it does matter because those are the company, those are the customers these companies are trying to woo. These companies, you know, cu customers have an unprecedented array of choices for their entertainment, you mm -hmm. know, and if customers think that these companies are treating the artists that they actually care about unfairly, I 100% believe that that can influence the customer's decision on what they choose to consume. So I think these companies ought to be- You think boycott Netflix? Well, we're there, not there calling, will be a movement. We're not calling for any boycott of anyone at this point. My point is really deeper than that. It's that, you know, 
consumers do care about what the companies that they buy products from do and services to. And I think that it does matter what consumers think about these companies. And um, I mean, I guess that remains to be seen, but our members are have strong solidarity. If you look at the projects that are being promoted for the summer, they are highly dependent on promotion from our members. They're highly dependent upon our members starring performances in them. And I have every indication that those members have 100% solidarity with this union. So I think we do have some leverage, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure whether people make a value judgment about the labor practices of the company that produces their favorite show. Um, If that were the case, I think we would have had problems watching Squid Game, which, you know, those Korean shows do not have the same protections that the American guilds offer. But I do think that the ace in the hole for you guys is you have the ability to get a lot of attention for yourselves. Your members are huge public figures. And if they're out there talking about it, have you have you lined up big names for the first few days of the strike? Yeah, we've been in contact with our members. I mean, I think you know that there are a number of members who are very eager to be out there publicly. You know, we have over 2,000 members, many of whom are quite high profile, who've signed on to a letter of support uh, almost two weeks ago for us. Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence, many others. Yeah, so without naming any names, I will say I do not expect any lack of familiar faces um, out on our picket lines or um, helping us in other ways because while picket lines are hugely important, it's not the only thing uh, that our members can do to help move this strike forward. And so I expect that we'll see members doing things in a variety of ways to show their support for the strike and to tell the companies in a variety of ways that they need to get you know, get to the business of making a deal with us. I joked about it, but honestly, Tom Cruise parachuting onto a picket line would get headlines around the world. Yes, it sure would. It sure would. Great idea. <laughs> I, I can't be the only one who thought of that. We'll, we'll relay that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what his position is on the union. You know, maybe you know, he, he gave his Golden Globes back when he heard that they didn't have great race policy. So maybe you can talk about that. So let's talk a little bit about the deal that you guys want and specifically the AI issue, because the studios put out a statement after you declared a strike kind of listing some of the things in their words, obviously, that they offered. And one of the things they say they offered was an unprecedented right to consent to an actor's likeness being used in creating a digital performer, which sounds good on paper. Why was that not enough for you guys? Well, first of all, you know, when you have no rules at all about something, literally anything you do about it is unprecedented. And that's exactly the case here. And look, I will acknowledge that we we put forward very detailed proposals on AI when we started these negotiations 36 days ago. And those proposals involve proposals regarding consent for the creation and use of digital replicas, as well as proposals about how generative AI can be used and AI training processes. So the companies have responded to a number of the proposals that we put on the table. The problem is the devil's in the details. So when you put forward a proposal, something like unprecedented uh, agreement to require consent for the creation of a digital replica, we had reached some agreement on the issue of there being a requirement for consent. But from our point of view, it has to be informed consent. Consent is not a boilerplate provision at the time you're first hired in a project that says the company can create a digital replica of you and use it for whatever purpose they want forever. 
Oh, so they want to put it in paragraph 35 of your original deal. So you don't really have a right of negotiation on that unless you are a huge star. Correct. And also, not only not a right of negotiation, not even a right to really know what is being done with your digital replica. The way we see it is a digital replica is like a digital double of you. And you should have every right to know what is being done with that digital double and to sign off of it just like you would if it was you doing it. Because it's your face, it's your body, it's your voice. Anyone who sees it, if it's a good enough quality, is going to think that you did it. And so our members deserve that right. They have not been willing to enshrine a sufficient level of informed consent. They haven't been willing to provide for a clear and defined level of compensation for this stuff. And the other thing that goes along with what you said, Matt, is, you know, when you have to give this consent at the time of employment, our members have much less leverage to negotiate something at that point. So if you're talking about, okay, we're going to do this digital double of you, this digital replica, and it's going to do the equivalent of three weeks work if you were an actor doing it, but we aren't going to pay you for that, or we're going to pay you a day, a day's scale for that. And if you don't like it, then we'll just go on to someone else and you'll lose the role. That is not an okay way to deal with artificial intelligence. Yeah. So for people who don't have sophisticated entertainment lawyers to be able to redline that out of their deal is what you're saying. Right. Or people who don't have the leverage to get it redlined out of their deal, even if they're lucky enough to have a good entertainment lawyer. (laughs) And by the way, also, when you talk about training of AI systems and generative AI, our view is if you're going to ingest our members' image, likeness, voice, et cetera, from past projects or current projects into an AI training system, that ought to be done with consent the ingestion of it ought to be done with consent. They absolutely refuse that. The only thing that they agree to is that they can do unlimited ingestion of our members' image, likeness, voice into their AI training systems for whatever purpose. And they agree that if they decide to use it to make a motion picture, then they will ask for consent. But that is not enough from our point of view because none of us know what the scope of generative AI is going to be. None of us know what the potential uses of it all are. And we do know that these companies are going to be out there looking to exploit it. So it's one thing to say it's a historic or unprecedented deal when you're comparing it to nothing. But the reality is it has to be sufficient to give our members some confidence that when they're going in there and having a digital duplicate of them made and living in some company's online warehouse, that they're going to have some control over how that is used. It's just basic. And by the way, I mentioned it in this press conference today, but their proposal two days ago to us was that background performers, once they get paid for one day's work or half day's work to get scanned, that the companies would have the right to use that digital replica of them, not just in the project that they were doing it for, but in any project in the future at any time with no consent and no compensation. Yeah, Jonathan and I talked about that. And, you know, we I haven't heard back to them yet on what they say about your guys' interpretation of that, but doesn't sound great. <laughs> it's not great. And by the way, I mean, that interpretation is not only from their document, but I specifically asked them that question and they confirmed to me when they delivered us that proposal that that was what they were asking for. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
you might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong. But these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, then let's go to the transparency issue because this one is interesting as well. Where were you guys on getting some kind of a success metric attached to compensation? Meaning you get paid more if a project is a success on streaming. Well, unfortunately, basically nowhere. We made a proposal on that on day one in our initial proposal package. We tried to talk about it every time we went across the table and in sidebars with them. Their only substantive response to that proposal was, you know, a uh, attack on parrot analytics. And, you know, our response to that to them was, look, it's not about parrot analytics. The only reason parrot analytics is in that proposal is because we know how these companies are about transparency. And we know that it's going to be a huge uphill battle to get any of the streamers to agree to provide actual data on viewership. So let's find another way to get to that point. And we said to them, we're not wedded to that one company or that one metric. The point is, we want a share of the revenue from streaming subscriptions, and we want it to be distributed to members based on the success of their projects. Within those parameters, we're open to discuss anything. And the answer was, every time we talked about it, we're not interested in discussing that with you. We aren't going to discuss that with you. Up until the very last day when Fran and I talked to multiple studio CEOs directly, told them this was a really important issue to us, told them that you know we weren't wedded to any of those details, but we needed them to move on this. You know, and they decided no. And were those CEOs streaming CEOs or were they traditional media company CEOs? Every one of those CEOs has a streaming platform. Some of them are also traditional media companies. Okay. So it was not like Netflix was the holdout or something. No. That rumor has gone around that the other studios wanted to settle and Netflix and Apple and Amazon are like, why? Well, I mean, I can't speak to what private conversations they had amongst themselves. Obviously, I wish I knew that, but I don't. All I can say is in the communications with us, we received no indication that any one of those companies was the holdout. We received the indication that all of them agreed that they didn't want to do anything to wrap that issue up in this negotiation. Right. There is a sense in the tech community and the business community that the actors and the writers are kind of stuck in the nostalgia for the old days and are unwilling to engage with the future. And you can pound your fist and stomp your feet as much as you want, but we're not going back to the days of the nanny where Fran Drescher had 28 episodes of broadcast sitcom per season that paid her robust residuals forever. And that the sooner the guilds agree that that's not the case anymore, the sooner they can work towards a new framework. How do you respond to that? Because Fran is still talking about the nanny and her 28 episodes a season. Right. But what she's ta- the context in what she's talking about that is how the industry has changed. And we're the only ones who came in with a proposal that actually tries to address the change in the industry. So it, to me, it's it's the pinnacle of hypocrisy for people to say we're unwilling to change. We could have come in with a proposal saying no AI. 
Did we come in with a proposal saying no AI? No, we did not. We came in with four specific proposals on exactly how AI could be implemented in the industry. And I think, you know, people taking a look at those proposals would say, you know what, those were very fair proposals. We weren't overreaching. We were just trying to do what we needed to do to protect our members. Same thing, streaming revenue share. That's not us trying to turn the clock back on the old industry. We know that industry is gone. Our members experience it every day. What we're trying to say is, okay, fine, let's do something. But what is not fair, what is completely unfair is for these companies to unilaterally change the business model, which they have done, and then to say, but we don't want to change your contract to reflect it. We want to keep your contract the way it always has been. We don't want to change anything. We want to keep you in the world of the 70s while we're living in 2023. That's not okay. As you know, I did a panel with you at CES in January on AI, and I was actually surprised at the time that you previewed that, that you said, we actually don't want to stop AI. We just want to make sure that we're part of the process and that our members can be compensated for the use of their image. Yeah, maybe it was maybe it was naivete or something. But my view on that was, you know, let's be upfront about that. Let's not try to rile our members up to say no to AI, that we would achieve better results for our members by actually trying to influence how AI is implemented in the industry rather than taking this absolutist sort of no position. And past history says that doesn't work. But um, I will say, you know, I'm disappointed that the companies haven't come more our way on this, considering what a reasonable start we had. Uh, I still remain hopeful that when we finally do get back to the bargaining table, that we'll be able to find a path on AI that can work for everybody. Well, Bob Iger says that it's not realistic, your demands. Yeah, I know. I heard that. Um, interestingly, <laughs> from his perch at Billionaire Summer Camp, uh, with the you know the mountains in the background, and it just was not an ideal look for him. It's not an ideal look. And, you know, I would just say two things. First of all, as far as Bob goes, I would welcome him to come actually participate in these negotiations. One of the problems with these negotiations is that we don't have enough participation from people in the, the C-suite who can actually well, say yes. He seems to be to delegating this. this to Dana Walden and Alan Bergman. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I, that's what I understood. And I think it's interesting to kind of delegate it and then decide to comment on it because as far as I know, he has no personal firsthand, well, he definitely has no firsthand knowledge because I was there for every day of negotiations. And, and I can assure you that, that that was not the case. But, you know, it's not, you know, it's not a criticism of him personally. It's saying for all the CEOs, the work that our members do is really important to the success of their companies. I think they ought to be more engaged with the process by which that the terms of that work get settled. Yeah, maybe he's positioning himself to come in at the last minute and be the savior. Great. I would welcome any CEO who wants to come in and help break a log jam because, like I said, we've been trying to talk about this proposal for the 35 days of negotiation and gotten no response. And the last word we got uh, last night was that no one in that room has the authority to make a move on this. So, well, I don't know what you do with that. So I saw the list of, of rules that you guys put out for the strike. And a couple things stuck out at me. One was, you guys haven't said what the parameters are going to be for waivers. You know, you've said in the past that independent productions that are not financed by or distributed by struck companies might get waivers for that. If, is that still the case? And if so, yeah. when are those coming? Because I talked to an indie producer today who's in the middle of a shoot and was like, what am I supposed to do? My cast is just sitting around. 
I expect that the parameters for interim agreements, I, I do want to just note, they're not really waivers. They're actually a full-on interim agreement that those companies would need to sign that is based on the terms from the last offers made last night. Now, we made new offers to the companies on some issues um, uh, as late and accepted subcounters as late as last night at 11 p.m. So obviously, it takes a minute for us to reduce that to contract language and put that into an interim agreement. I expect that interim agreement terms to be published today. Uh, on our website. I expect it to be public. And uh, likewise, the process for our existing signatories to request an interim agreement, they just go to their business rep that's already known to them, tell them they want an interim agreement, and we'll, we have an application for them to fill out that'll help us confirm that they aren't connected with the AMPTP. And if that's the case, then we'll issue them and meet our other criteria. We'll issue them an interim agreement um, so they can continue. But it's not going to be an instantaneous process. Um, it is, and you know, it's going to take a little time, a few days perhaps, for those things to happen. We will try to triage productions that are happening so that we can help them, you know, reduce the, you know, costs of, of any kind of waiting. But, you know, a strike is a blunt instrument. There's a reason it's a last resort. And when we do a strike, it has to be effective. It has to cut off all uh, access to our talent for the companies that we're striking against and the, on the contracts we're striking against. And so we can't uh, be soft on that. And does that mean that independent films that go to these film festivals in the fall, that their casts will be allowed to promote on the red carpet and such, these independent films that are not financed by or distributed by struck companies? If they're truly independent, if they pass our fingerprints test and thereby get an interim agreement, then yes, they'll be allowed to promote them, provided that the circumstances of the promotion are consistent with our rules. For example, uh, they're not going to be allowed to do them in a co-promotion with one of the studios or with, you know, a streaming channel or anything like that. So, you know, if you are at a festival sponsored by XYZ platform, that's going to be an issue. But if it remains independent of any of that kind of thing, then uh, yeah, they'll be able to do that. And how about social media? Because you put out all these rules that you, you can't promote projects via po podcasts, actually, television, all these other you know, tours, things like that. But you have social media on there. How, do you, how can, are you going to police what stars do and say on social media? I think they all know, and we've talked to their publicists, we've talked to their agents, we've talked to their lawyers. Uh, I think they all know that as far as projects that are made in a TV theatrical, they shouldn't be promoting them, they shouldn't be talking about them in a promotional way or anything like that. I mean, there may be some things that end up being gray area that we have to deal with, but um, it is really crucial that we cut off the stream of promotional work that's being done for these companies as part of the strike. And so that's why social media is on there. And frankly, I expect that we will have very universal voluntary compliance with those rules. I do not think we're going to you know, have to have uh, that many proceedings related to that. But obviously, we'll keep an eye on it. And if it starts creating a problem, then we'll, we'll deal with it. How long are you prepared to go? As long as it takes. I mean, I hope that's not that long. I mean, we told them we were ready and willing to continue negotiating, and they said they didn't want to do that, at least not for now. So, you know, we will focus on our strike, but whenever the companies are ready to sit down at the table again and talk, we'll be ready. And the fact that the writers are also striking, um, I, I had thought perhaps the studios would want to do a deal with you guys to put more pressure on the writers. Now that the whole thing has blown up, do you expect some kind of macro deal or maybe they go to the writers now first and then come back to SAG? How do you think this will play out? 
I don't really know the inner workings of their thought process. So it's certainly any of the things that you just mentioned could be possible. I do think um, while we have a lot in common with Writers Guild in certain areas, and of course our support is very solid and deep, um, there are also a lot of differences between our, you know, the proposals that we're working on and our constituencies are quite different. So I'm not sure that there'd be some macro deal that could apply to both, but I, I do, you know, plan for us to continue cooperating with the Writers Guild as we have been. You know, um, Ellen and I are in very frequent contact. We talk about all kinds of stuff. And frankly, there's been huge support from the Directors Guild as well. I've been in touch with my counterpart there and the other unions, IATSE, Teamsters. There's been tremendous labor solidarity throughout our negotiations, and I expect that to continue uh, as we go forward. All right. Well, I think this is the beginning of a long process. And uh, you you might know, be I right. still believe, I, I know you, you can't predict, but I still believe mid-September, end of September is when we'll see some movement here. I think people will write off the summer. They will come back after Labor Day. And then we'll start to see something here. Well, you know, it. I, I think the reaction from our members that you've seen today um, and we'll continue to see will show that our members are ready for that if, it's, if that's what it takes. We don't want it to take that long. We want it to be as short as possible. We know it causes a lot of uh, disruption and harm to people uh, to be on strike. But um, I assure you, we wouldn't be on strike if we didn't think we had to. And I think uh, other workers and just people in general, when they see what we're fighting for, I think they will agree that it's a fight worth, worth having. So Tom Cruise flies his jet over the Paramount lot, jumps out of the plane, parachutes and lands at the Paramount gate in front of the picket, and everyone goes nuts. I think they would go nuts for that. I have to agree with you <laughs> on that point. The strike ends the <laughs> I next can't day. Comment whether that's worldwide, part of our plans, but <laughs> worldwide public support turns into an immediate end to the strike. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> um, all right, Duncan, I appreciate you taking some time on this very, very crazy day. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Matt. Good to talk to you. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland. I want to thank our producer, editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. Craig will be back next week. Can't wait to tell him Hollywood imploded while he was gone. Hope to see you then. 